You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Wars and Rumors of Wars. There's an old idiom that I'm sure all of us have heard at some point in our lives that goes out of the frying pan and into the fire. This idiom refers to a circumstance where you finally get out of one bad situation only to end up in a possibly worse situation. And if you've been following current events in the recent months, I can't help but think that this idiom reflects what's happening in the world today. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago that, that the province finally lifted the, the mask mandates after two long years of dealing with the pandemic. But instead of things going back to normal, as we all know, just a little month, just a little over a month ago, Russia stepped into Ukraine and started a war. And so now the focus has shifted from a pandemic to the possibility of a world war. And I can only imagine what it's been like for the Ukrainian people uh, since then. They went from the pandemic and now they're having to deal with a war. And we're seeing some of the ramifications of that, of course. We've seen the gas prices go up, cost of living go up, inflation has been increasing over time. What's next, right? It seems like the world is getting worse and worse and there's no end in sight for the problems that humanity is facing. Not only that, but the fear and the anxiety that is associated with it all. Right? Like the news stations in, in the past two years have been saying the pandemic, COVID, and the variants, all this. Now it's Russia and, and, the, and Ukraine and the, the war and all this. This fear is just, just overwhelming. And I'm sure parents and, and, and grandparents, you could probably relate to how I've been feeling in the midst of all of this. But it seems I'm always having to go to God with my fears of what kind of world my children are going to grow up in. And I'm sure it's the same for, for even those who aren't parents, right? Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, how, is, how, how am I going to get married in a world like this? Or, or, or how are my, my future plans going to look like? Or, or you know, what, what about, uh, about my family back home? Will I be able to see them again? Everything seems to be up in the air and everything could change at a, at a moment. There's no certainty, it seems. Now, what adds to the stress of these things is that you have some preachers claiming that it's the end times, that, everything's, that everything that's going on in the world is, is part of you know, some biblical prophecy and, and, and that right, it's like that Russia is like this beast in, the Revel, in Revelation and, and China is like this thing in, in the book of this. And, and it just adds to this whole idea of fear and, and what's going on, what's, what's going to happen next. And then, of course, it's not just believers, it's not just Christians, but I don't know if you heard this, but the Pope even, just a couple of weeks ago, performed some sort of consecration ceremony to consecrate Russia in order to fulfill a Catholic prophecy that usher in the end times. It's like, what's going on? What's, like, I'm stressed enough, right? Just trying to put my kids to bed at night. I don't have to deal with Russia and, and end times. What is happening in the world? 
It seems like everyone, including Christians, are trying to connect the dots, to make sense of everything, to have some sort of assurance or security or, or foresight as to what's going to happen in the world. But at its core, I think people are just looking for hope, looking for something to hold on to, some sort of permanence in a world that is constantly changing around us. There is a desire to make a sense, make sense of it all, to know what's coming next, what's around the corner. So in order to prepare ourselves or, or to maybe lessen the blow or to get a sense of security as to what's coming. It's like my wife, right? She hates any suspense in, in any movie, right? Literally, like we watch a movie, it's like five minutes into the movie, and she's like, who's going to die? You have to tell me who's going to die. I don't want this person to die. Tell me who's going to die. Who's going to die? And then she looks it up on IMDb or something and, and figures out, oh, this person's going to die, so I'm not going to get attached to this person. That's her, literally. This is why I only watch Teletubbies with the kids, because that's, that's not suspenseful whatsoever. Oh, no, Tinky Winky, what's happening? No, that never happens. And I think that's everyone in the world right now. Everyone is hope, holding their breath. What's going to happen next? Or looking, over, or looking all over the place to make sense of it all or to figure out, okay, what's, what's coming after Russia, right? Or what's the next variant or what's the next world issue? And listen, friends, there is hope. There is assurance. There is security in God's word. But listen, it's not in prophecies. Or trying to pinpoint the time and day of the Lord's return. Our hope is in God himself. Our hope is in the truth that even though we don't know what tomorrow holds, we know who holds our tomorrow. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing in our passage this morning. The disciples are like us. They were so concerned about the end times. Concerned about what was going to happen and figuring out what, every, what, what was going to take place during, uh, the, during Christ's coming and what we see instead is, is Christ not giving the disciples precisely a date of when everything was going down. Jesus instead points them to truths to hold on to in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of the crisis to come. Jesus points them to the hope they have, that we have as believers, a hope that provides a firm foundation, something to stand on, firm footing when the world is falling apart. And so this morning, I want to unpack for us these same truths that Christ gave to his disciples as they faced the tribulations that were coming their way, as they feared what was coming their way. And, and then hopefully that'll impart to us the kind of faith, the kind of hope that we ought to have as, as we see all the events and all the crises on the world stage change, and even as we live in a fallen world. And my hope is that as Jesus commands us, as Jesus commands his disciples in this, in this passage, that we too would not be alarmed, but rather have hope. My prayer, church, is that if you've been seeing what's been happening in the world and feeling very fearful and hopeless, that you would find hope this morning. A hope that, was, that is more sure than any policy that a government can make, than any promise that a country can make. A hope that is founded in our Lord Jesus Christ. A hope that promises a future and a tomorrow to all those who are found in Christ. So let's get into it. This is exciting. We haven't really done an eschatological discussion in church before, but we're going to get into it this morning. Anyone else excited for this? All right. All these uh, conspiracy theorists are uh, warming up their pens here. 
All right, let's get into our passage. Someone say jump for me. Similar to our passage last week, our, our passage this morning takes place just a couple of days before the Last Supper and after the triumphal entry. And I think that gives us a good indication of what Jesus is trying to do in our passage. He knows that he's about to go to the cross, be crucified, die, and, and raise again, and leave his disciples for a while. And so what he's trying to do in our passage is really impart some comfort impart some hope to them as this, uh, to prepare them for the tribulation to come. Our passage begins with Christ prophesying the destruction of the temple. He says in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're like, hey, look at these buildings, Lord. They're beautiful, aren't they? But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This prophecy, by the way, was completely fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans came to Jerusalem and burned down the temple and literally took it apart stone by stone, leaving nothing behind. Now you can imagine what the disciples would have thought after hearing this, this prophecy about the destruction of the temple. The temple was one of the most important pieces of Jewish national identity to the Jewish people and to the Jewish nation. And in fact, the central focus of their Jewish faith. But here was Jesus saying, it's going to be destroyed. It's not going to be around in a couple of years. This would have worried the Jewish disciples, right? So in verse 3, it says, in, in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, the disciples were confused. We read in Luke chapter 19 that the disciples were, were still under the impression that the Messiah's kingdom would come immediately, would be established in their lifetime. They thought that Jesus would come in riding on a white horse, conquer Rome, and establish a new Davidic kingdom. So, this, the, so the destruction of the temple didn't make sense in their timeline. This, by the way, is what they meant by asking Jesus uh, for a sign of your coming. They had no concept of Jesus' second coming. They have, as mentioned, they didn't know that Jesus was about to die, go to heaven, and the church be established, and there'd be a second coming. What they thought, again, is that Jesus was just going to become king, and, and Israel and, and, the, and this new kingdom of God would be established all over the earth. They were confused about this timeline that Christ was giving them. So Jesus clarifies some things. He says in verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Jesus expands on this thought later in verse 23 of this same chapter. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Jesus says that false teachers will come claiming to know exactly when Christ will come. Some would even claim to be Christ themselves. He says, don't believe them. Now, just from that it should be red flags whenever you hear a preacher saying, oh, Jesus is going to come 2023 on February 3rd, and this year or next year, right? Red flags, don't believe them. Because again, even later on in the passage, Jesus says, only the Father knows, only the Father knows when the Son will come. And, and anyone who claims this secret knowledge is a false teacher. Don't believe them. Then Jesus says in verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for that, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. 
So now we get to the heart of why Jesus is telling all of this to his disciples. He says this, right? We, read, we just read it. See that you are not alarmed. The Greek word there is thereo, meaning to be terrified, or more precisely, to be thrown into emotional distress. Jesus is clarifying these things. The, Jesus is clarifying these things to his disciples because he doesn't want them to be afraid. He doesn't want them to be fearful. Even if war breaks out, even if the world is in crisis, even if the world is falling apart, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. See that you're not alarmed. He then gives us the reason as to why we shouldn't be afraid. He says it, he says it there, for this must take place. Jesus is speaking the language of necessity. And not just necessity, but intentionality. There is a reason as to why all of these things must take place. There's a reason for this. Nothing is random. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is without purpose. Even war and the rumors of war, there must, these things must take place. There's a reason for them. See, this is the first truth that Jesus is pointing his disciples to and, and pointing us to this morning. Our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. Jesus is taking the worst possible situation that, that could take place in the lifetime of these disciples. Wars and rumors of wars. Rumors simply meaning the threat of war or the possibility of war. And he's saying, don't be afraid because it's all part of God's sovereign plan, his sovereign will. The disciples being Jews were all too familiar with war. Technically, in, Jew, in Jesus' day, Israel was a Roman occupation a nation conquered by Rome. They were regularly, they, they were, there was regular attempts of trying to overthrow Rome. So they were all too familiar with war. And of course, the Jews of, the, of Jesus' day knew altogether what, what, what war brought. It wasn't just death, of course, there, there, was, there was famine and, and, and displacement, a shortage of resources, separation from loved ones. Yet despite all of that, Jesus calls them and calls us to not fear. Do not be alarmed because all these things must take place. It's all part of God's sovereign will and purposes. Church, we must remember that God is in control. He's in control of every minute detail in our lives and every grand scheme in the world. There's nothing that escapes his, his eyes or, or, or that the Lord or, or escapes his will or is outside of his will. We worship a God who, who declares the end from the beginning, uh, things from ancient times that have not yet come. We worship a God who says that my counsel, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. In Isaiah 46 verse 10, it says, that's Isaiah 46 verse 10, by the way, and understand that, that nothing that happens in our world is outside of the will of our sovereign God. It's, nothing is outside of the reach of God. That's including Every political decree or federal policy enacted, whether good or bad, God is in control. Our God is sovereign. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's including Vladimir Putin. That's including Justin Trudeau's heart. That's including Doug Ford's heart. God has the final say over the decisions of even the most powerful men and women in this world. Now, does that mean then that God wills for evil things to take place in the world? Evil policies, evil dictators, evil wars? By no means. God never desires for evil, but he does turn what men meant for evil and uses it for 
Similar to Pharaoh in the Old Testament, God uses even the hardness of man's heart to enact and demonstrate his glorious will. So rest assured, whether it's, it's what's happening in Ukraine or even the politics in, in our own backyard, God is still in control. He still has the final say. It's also important to note that throughout Scripture, we also see God using evil nations to judge other evil nations. That's what happened to idolatrous Israel being conquered by Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by Persia. And then Persia was conquered by Greece. And then so on and so on. The Bible says that that was all part of God's judgment on those nations. Now, that's not to say that Russia is in the right. Or that Ukraine deserved this invasion. But simply to say that before a holy, holy, holy God, all nations and all people from every tribe and tongue, fall short of the glory of God. And the only thing that we deserve is His judgment. It's only by God's mercy and grace that man's kingdom even prospers or continues to exist. But whether we like it or not, there will come a time where Christ will return and every nation will bow before Him. Every government will fall to the iron, the, the rod of iron of Christ's judgment. That, by the way, is what his sovereign will is leading up to. Why God is, is permitting this evil in our world. Why there is suffering and crisis in the world. Not because God turns a blind eye to it or, or because he, he doesn't care or he just lets it happen. But because he is showing mercy and grace. Because he is long-suffering. Because he's enduring the evils of humanity. Giving the opportunity for mankind to repent of their sins and turn to him for reconciliation. Romans chapter 5 says in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent, impenitent, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The point is this, listen church, the allowance of man's evil in the world is a demonstration of God's forbearance in the world. His mercy in it. So if ever we are tempted to think, why doesn't God just do something about Russia or the suffering in the world, about the wars in the world? Understand that he is. He's showing mercy. He's giving everyone the opportunity, even those on the wrong side of the aisle, to repent and be reconciled to him. Because as Jesus says, do not fear those who, who, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So church, understand, in light of what's happening in Ukraine and everything else in the world, we mustn't just pray for peace. Although that is good, we must pray for repentance. We must pray for the salvation of not just the Ukrainian people, but every people group that is suffering at the hands of depraved men. We must pray that those who commit atrocious acts of war do not squander the mercy that God has provided them, the opportunity that God has provided for them to repent. We must pray that even in the midst of world crisis, that God would enact his sovereign will to save sinners. Church, take heart. Do not be afraid of what's happening in the world. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust that he is in control that his purposes are good, especially for those who love God. That all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purposes. 
Our God is sovereign. Notice as well what Jesus says in our passage in verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. And then listen, but the end is not yet. Jesus says you're going to witness wars and hear about rumors of wars, but don't worry, it's not the end just yet. These things are taking place according to God's will, but it's not the end just yet. And Jesus continues in verse 7, For nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says these things will take place, that the world, that the world because it is fallen, will experience wars and crisis and famines and earthquakes, but these things are not the end. They are just the beginning of the birth pains. He's using the, the imagery of a woman in labor to depict when the end would come because, it, because for those who have ever experienced a pregnancy, you know there's a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of false alarms even before the actual birth takes place. That's what's happening in the world today. The pain and the discomfort before the actual birth process. It's bad, but it's not as bad as what's to come. The end is not yet. And Jesus continues to elaborate on, on what's to come before the end. Verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus references two eschatological events here that are to take place before he returns. Verse 9 is in reference to the great tribulation where believers will be persecuted and even killed for their faith. And then verse 10 to 11 refers to the great apostasy where many who claim to be Christians will fall away from the faith. These two events signal the end and the return of Christ. Now, in case you're thinking, well, Pastor Ian, isn't that stuff already happening today? Aren't Christians being killed for their faith and aren't believers falling away from the faith even today? True, and, and they have been for centuries, but these events, describe, these events described in Scripture are on a level such as the world has never seen before. A persecution of believers that exceeds anything in history and isn't isolated in remote places of the world. This is a global event according to Scripture, and, and the same thing with the great apostasy, a falling away from the true faith of the Bible on a massive scale. We'll eventually do a whole, series, a whole series on eschatology to, to look at these events, but for now, understand that these are the signs that Jesus gives of, of when the end would come. Then in verse 12, he says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus states the condition of the world by the time the end draws near. It paints a picture as to why believers will be persecuted and why some will even fall away from the faith. And that's because the world will grow increasingly more evil. That's the reality of the world that we live in. If, if you're trying to figure out how 10 or 20 years is going to look from now or, or the kind of world that your children are going to grow up in, this is it. It will be evil, even, even more wicked than today. That's the timeline, that the world that we that will the world will grow increasingly more lawless, meaning without morality, and as a result, the love of many will grow cold. The love of what? The love of God and the things of God. Because that's what happens when humanity goes further and further away from God. You love less and become more lawless, lawless. 
Later in, this, in the passage, Jesus equates this period of human history to that of the days of Noah. And if you know that story in Genesis 6, it says that every intention from the heart of man and every thought from the mind of man, it was continuously only evil. That's what it says in Genesis. There, there was no one seeking after God, no one obeying God. Their love for God had grown cold and will be the same in the last days. You might be thinking, Pastor Ian, I thought this was supposed to be encouraging, right? I thought Jesus was trying to comfort his disciples. That doesn't sound encouraging at all. Disciples are just asking for clarification of when the end times is going to take place. And Jesus starts talking about earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. It's like, that escalated quickly. Well, here comes the encouragement. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the promise. That's the hope. That those who endure the great tribulation and the great apostasy and the increasingly evil world, they will be saved. It's not a possibility. It's not a, a maybe. It's not a, well, we'll see at the end of the day if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. No, Jesus says you will be saved. That's the comfort. Here, here's the truth that Jesus is trying to impart. Our salvation is certain. Our salvation is certain. Now you might be thinking, well, Pastor Ian, there's a big requirement in that verse, right, it says that the one who endures, well, 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 what if I don't endure, right? That doesn't really sound so certain. Like, well, what if I can't endure? And I understand the concern. But here's what Scripture says. Let me give you some references, and you can write them down, and you can look it up on your own, and I'll summarize them for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says that God is the one who sustains us to the end. And causes us to be guiltless on the day of Jesus Christ. In Jude chapter 1 verse 24, it says that God is the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless to himself. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 18, it says God is the one who rescues us and who will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23, it says God is the one who sanctifies us, who keeps us blameless and who is faithful to save. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God is the one who provides an escape so that we can endure. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, God is the one who works in us to will and work for his good pleasure. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is the one who causes us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept and guarded by God himself. There are more verses like this that affirm our security, but... One last verse, and I'll, and I'll make my point here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All of Scripture echoes the salvific work of God to, to preserve those he's called to himself. 
It is God who sustains, God who rescues, God who guards, God who works in us, God who wills in us, God who keeps us from stumbling and keeps us blameless, keeps us enduring to the very end. Back to our passage, the reason why, why the one who endures will be saved is because the one who endures is the one who is already saved. That's the reality of it. Perseverance is a sign of God's salvific work in the heart of the believer, that, that the gospel has truly taken root and has borne fruit. Now please understand, this doesn't, this doesn't negate the responsibility that every believer has to run the race, to wrestle with our faith in fear and trembling, or to stand our ground in the midst of tribulation. No, because if God has truly saved us, if he has truly changed our hearts, then we will want to persevere. We will want to run the race. But the point is this, our perseverance in the faith is evidence of God preserving our faith. That's the assurance that Jesus is talking about in our passage, that regardless of what crisis or tribulation that comes our way, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not a maybe, not a possibility, they will be saved. Because their endurance is evidence of God's salvific work in their lives. Can you imagine the utter hopelessness it would be if Jesus just simply said, uh, the one who endures everything, you know, everything that he just listed out, the famines, the earthquakes, the tribulations, the false prophets, the, everything that's happening in the world, the lawlessness, the evil. Can you imagine if Jesus said, well, it's still a possibility that you won't be saved? Like, what's the point, right? But again, the promise is that our salvation is certain. If God brings us to it, he'll bring us through it. Church, consider the truth, this truth, whenever the problems of the world get the better of you. Whenever world events invoke fear and panic, whenever the anxiety of what tomorrow may bring rises in you, remember that in a world of uncertainties, our salvation is certain. Can you imagine the boldness that we believers could have only we live this truth out. The same truth that invokes the Apostle Paul to cry out in the midst of prison, in the midst of suffering and tribulation, he cries out, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How would your life be different? Imagine for a minute, how would your life be different if you lived out this truth, knowing that your salvation is certain, Knowing that regardless of what you face in this lifetime, regardless of what crisis, regardless of what trials, regardless of what happens in Europe or in Africa or in North America or wherever else, you know that you are secured in the hands of our holy God. Live knowing that your salvation is secure. Our last encouragement before we enter into a time of communion this morning. Jesus reminds his disciples that God is sovereign that everything that is taking place is in accordance to God's will. He reminds them that salvation is assured to those who endure the great tribulation, the things to come. And finally, he says in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, some have taken this verse to mean another, uh, to mean another requirement before Christ's Second coming before Christ returns. That the gospel will be preached in every nation before he comes. And that may be the case, but at face value, Jesus is simply reassuring his disciples that the gospel will be proclaimed. And will in fact reach all nations 
And that reality is a testimony to is a testimony of the validity and the supremacy of the gospel that we belong to. Jesus is saying that the gospel will be preached and it will reach all nations. That's a testimony of the legitimacy of this kingdom of mine. The point, church, is this our gospel will prevail. Our gospel will prevail. No matter what happens in the world, what war arises, what crisis appears, what suffering persists, understand, church, that our rallying cry, the hope that binds us together, the catalyst for true and eternal and lasting change in this world, the promise of an everlasting peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. The gospel that proclaims a holy God who made a way to reconcile sinful men through his son, who died on the cross for, on our behalf so that we can have a right relationship with God, so that we can spend eternity with God in right relationship. That gospel, that gospel will prevail. It will stand the test of time. It will stand any government of man, any policy, any ideology, any philosophy of man. The gospel will prevail. That is our victory. Even if we lose everything in this life, we can rejoice that the good news of Jesus Christ will be heard in all the nations and prove its supremacy. Our gospel will prevail. The only source of true and lasting peace and true hope and true joy and reconciliation with a holy God. This is why we mustn't relent in sharing the good news now more than ever. People must hear the gospel all the more in times of crisis. Again, our time is short. God is showing mercy to the entire world, giving an opportunity for everyone to hear the good news of Jesus Christ before the end comes. This is why we must not be ashamed of the gospel. For as the Apostle Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We must let the world know that the gospel is the only hope for a broken world. When we're facing a world of tribulation, a world full of wars and rumors of wars, church, remember, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the hopelessness, this is not the end. This is not the end. Remember, in the midst of it all, our God is sovereign. He is the one who is in control. Not the politicians, not the governments, not the sins of man. God is the one in control. Remember as well that our salvation is certain. It's secured. It's secured for the day of Jesus Christ, that it is God himself who guards it. Guards, God is the one who keeps it. God's the one who sustains it. God's the one who allows and enables us to endure. And at the end of the day, remember that our gospel will prevail. The gospel will prevail. Before we turn into our time of communion, I'm reminded why all of these things are taking place. Why the sovereignty of God is, taken, is important, why our salvation is certain, why the gospel will prevail, because all these things proclaims the love of God. 
proclaims the love of God, the reason why God is sovereign, why he, he is involved in every, in every detail of the world and every scheme of man is because all of it, his will comes together in order to demonstrate his love for his people. The reason why he, he ensures that our salvation is secured is because he loves us with an eternal love, just as we sang a few moments ago. And the reason why the gospel will prevail is because the gospel is what declares the love of God for us sinful men. As we sang, as we sang, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our That is the gospel that we proclaim. That is a gospel that will change the world. And that's the gospel that we remember as we enter into a time of communion. At this time, I'm going to ask the volunteers to be ready. In 1 Corinthians 11, it, just, it discusses how before any of us are to take part of the Lord's table that we are to examine ourselves. That we must discern whether or not we are truly part of the body of Christ. Or else drink judgment, or else eat and drink judgment onto ourselves. The idea here is that the Lord's table is for those who have identified with the death of Christ who recognizes that, uh, that Christ is their Savior, that Christ is the one who was taken their sin and has paid for it on the cross. And so at this time, I ask you to examine your own hearts. Examine if you truly identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you truly identify as a believer in Christ. And if not, that's, that's fine. We'd love to have those discussions with you of how that looks like. But as the, as the elements come around, you can just kindly allow them to pass you by. At the same time, would ask them for those who are believers to examine your hearts for any hidden sin. Part of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 is, is having unity in the body. And he says, this unity gets in the way of truly commemorating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled. And so I invite you at this time to reconcile any, any sins with God, reconcile any hurts with brothers or sisters, examine yourselves so that you would not eat of the bread and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. Please take the time.
ask the volunteers to distribute the elements. I'm going to ask everyone else to stand as they do. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we enter into this time of remembering the broken body and the blood that was spilt so that we could have a right relationship with you, I pray, O oh God, that you would search us. You would find our hearts true and faithful to you. That God, you would remind us that you bring real conviction once again in our hearts and the minds of the cost, oh Lord, of this relationship that we have with you. That you remind us, oh Lord, of the forgiveness that we have found in you. The love that we found in you. I pray that you'd be glorified, you'd bless these elements, and you'd move amongst your people during this time. Remind us once again of your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are reminded, oh Lord, of the body that was broken for us. The body that was broken so that we would receive healing. The body that was broken so that, God, we could be restored so that we wouldn't have to live broken lives. We're reminded of the blood that was spilled for our cleansing, for the washing away of our sins. The washing away of our sins to make us white as snow, to present ourselves before you holy and blameless. 
and with the righteousness of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd bring about the weight of the gospel on our hearts. That we would truly be convicted, but also rejoice, oh Lord, knowing that our salvation is secure, knowing that you have made a way, and knowing that God, your gospel, the gospel that saves us will be proclaimed in all the nations and will conquer. And so God, we thank you for this great opportunity, this great privilege of coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ around the table and remembering your great love that you demonstrate on the cross. Lord, we praise you. We say that we love you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.